Mark chapter 4, reading from verses 1 through to 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that had gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat, sat in it on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. And the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprung up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, and even a hundred times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is in parables, so that they may be ever seeing and never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop 30 60 and even a hundred times what was sown may god bless his word unto us uh, father we do thank you for your word and we pray now that we would have soft hearts and uh, ears that are big and open and wanting to listen to what you have to say Father, we pray for the children as uh, Cassie teaches them that they would have the seed of the gospel firmly planted in their hearts and that uh, you would bear much fruit uh, through the word in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> What's in it for me? That's the uh, question which uh, advertising people have spinning around in their minds. Uh, when they're dreaming up new advertising campaigns to sell products and services to people like you and me. Because uh, to, the, to the consumer, to the customer, that's the big question, isn't it? What's in it for me? 
listen to what one advertising guru said about this. He said, and I quote, the real key to advertising is quite simple. Uh, your customer wants to know what's in it for me. So tell them. Tell them what's in it for them. If you don't do that, then no amount of fireworks, no amount of freebies is going to do any good whatsoever. You've got to tell them what's in it for me. And that's kind of like the spirit of our age, isn't it? That's the spirit of our generation. It's, uh, uh, we're very me-centred. We want to know how we can benefit from whatever it is that they've got to sell or promote and so on. You know, some people think that that's how we should sell God. Uh, that we should sell God by telling people uh, what God can do for them. And uh, so, you know, you'll sometimes hear it in slogans and phrases where people say, you know, come to Jesus and, uh, you know, he'll heal you of all of the difficulties in your life or turn to God and you'll become happy and you'll become fulfilled. And you know what? It's kind of like a half-truth, isn't it? There's a grain of truth. In one sense, it's quite true. You know, come to God, yet you will actually be happy and fulfilled because guess what? There's nothing better than being forgiven of your sin and there's nothing better than living the way that God created you to live and there's nothing better than living with him for all of eternity. But that's not kind of what they're actually on about. Uh, They're often promoting God without the whole idea of actually giving up everything that uh, giving up what you're living for and turning your life over to serving God Um, giving up yourself and saying yes to God and repenting of your sin and turning back to him and so they people are are driven by this uh, you know they they want to sell God in the same way that that, you know people sell coca-cola or uh, you know or um, bank accounts or Um, or Toyota cars, you know, oh, what a feeling, that sort of thing. What's in it for me? That's the question. And in Mark chapter 4, our passage today, as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel, that's um, what we see is that that's actually not the message that that Jesus preached. So if you want to open up at Mark 4, in in verse 1, again we see that Jesus was swamped by people. Remember, he's up north, he's in Galilee, he's by the lake this time and the crowds have just uh, compacted in around Jesus, uh, so much so that he has to hop onto a boat and go a few metres offshore so that people can actually, there's a bit of space between him and the crowd so that people can see him and people can hear him. Now, um, when we get a huge crowd at church, uh, imagine you know if uh, church today was so packed that there was people right up to the very front, and I had to move back and stand on the table, you know, so that people we'd we'd be pretty excited about that, wouldn't we? We'd think that would be absolutely great. Let's pray for that. But and and that's good because it's great when there's lots of people come to hear the word of God. But Jesus knows the human heart and he knows that in that crowd compacting around him on the lake that day that there were some people who were actually just there because it was you know for the entertainment factor they 
heard about this guy Jesus and they'd come to hear Jesus and they thought it was pretty cool to be near Jesus. Uh, there are other people whose hearts were genuinely seeking after God and there may have even been people in that crowd that day who wanted to kill him um, because they hated him. And so, you know, Jesus doesn't get all that excited by a huge crowd because he knows the human heart. And uh, in this passage, rather than turning to people and doing the whole, you know, what can God do for you kind of bit, instead he, he fronts the people and he speaks to them about their hearts. And that's what this passage is, is about. It's about the, uh, the different kinds of hearts that people have. And so uh, if you have a look at... I'm going to read again verses 3 through to 9 for us because I think this is critical for our... Um, Understanding, if you uh, care to turn it up in Mark 4, verses 3 to 9. Um, it says, uh, as it, uh, Jesus said to them this, he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up and the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root, other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60 or even 100 times. And then Jesus said, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So that's the story. There's a farmer. He's got his uh, seed bag slung over his shoulder and he's walking through the furrows of his uh, fields and he's scattering out handfuls of seed as he goes. And the question is, would the seed produce a crop? And that depends on where it falls, where it lands. Now, this would have been a very common sight for Jesus' hearers. Uh, it's the sort of thing that they saw every day. And, and you can imagine them listening to Jesus and thinking to themselves, why is he giving us a lesson in basic agriculture? Uh, you know, what's this got to do with you know, the price of fish in Galilee sort of thing? You know? what, what's, what, what's he on about here? And, even, and you and I would be the same. because you know, We look at this parable and we get it because we've actually heard the explanation of it, don't we? Um, but if, if we were there... Uh, we'd be wondering about it as well. Even in verse 10, the disciples didn't get it, did they? Uh, they didn't understand why he's giving them this agriculture lesson. They didn't understand what the agriculture lesson meant. And so Jesus had to explain it to them. And he does so in verses 13 through to 20. I'm going to go through the explanation and draw out some implications for us. And it's uh, in verses 13 to 20, we see that the seed is the message about the kingdom of God. The seed is the good news of the gospel. And the soil is the heart of the hearer, the person who hears the gospel message. And there are four types of human hearts we're going to go through those four types. First of all, in verses 4 through to 7 and in the explanation in verse 15, there are those people who have stubborn hearts. Stubborn hearts. See, uh, Galilee was a very fertile place 
and the fields were uh, small and they were packed in together and the fields were separated by pathways which the farmers and travellers would walk along those pathways and obviously when they're walking along the pathways the, uh, the ground becomes uh, compacted, it's, it's trodden in, it's hard, it's relatively solid as paths tend to be and Jesus is saying is that some of the seed falls on those paths. Now there's a lot of people who've got hearts which are just like that. Um, and we, we come across people like that all of the time, don't we? Uh, they've, they've got hearts that are like a well-trodden path so that when the seed of the gospel lands, it, it doesn't take any root. Instead, Satan comes and swoops and he steals the seed away. And you know the kind of person I'm talking about, don't you? Uh, people who we meet every day, people who enjoy the creation and who love the fruits of the creation but have very little interest in the creator. And so, you know, when you try talking to them about God, well, you know, the conversation just, just goes cold, falls flat. They change the topic, don't they? It's, it's kind of brick wall sort of stuff. And we'll meet people like this at work, at school, at uni, in our neighbourhoods and in our families. And guess what? Some of us might have been like that once, with hard hearts. And we know that God is in the business of softening hearts. And so what we need to be doing is to be keeping on praying for people, praying for the Spirit to be at work in their lives, to, uh, to, um, uh, to plough their hearts, to soften their hearts. And that is the business that God is involved in. But it's important that Jesus points this out to us because it helps us to diagnose um, people, particularly as we're sharing the gospel. And it leads us to expect that there is going to be this hard-heartedness which we will encounter. Now, secondly, there are those whose hearts are shallow and we meet them in verses 16 and 17 where Jesus says others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once they receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And so this seed is, um, falls on ground that's, uh, that's rocky and there would be a thin layer of soil that... Uh, a lot of rock underneath and the, the, what happens is when the seed falls that it, uh, it starts to sprout shoots uh, and, and it, uh, it, but it can't uh, sink deep roots into the, into the soil because there isn't much depth there and so what it does is it, it goes the only direction that it can, it grows upwards, uh, it's very quick it's very impressive growth, but it, it does, doesn't last because it can't last. And, and the, because the, the plant just can't suck up enough nutrients. And so when the sun comes up and the heat scorches the plant, 
it just withers and dies. Shallow soil, shallow hearts. Now, you know, think about this in terms of um, our ministry. Uh, It's great, it is is the best thing when someone turns to Jesus for the first time in their lives and trusts in the gospel. And that's something which we rejoice over when it happens. But how do you know for sure that the plant is planted, that the seed is planted in good soil? Um, Well, it's when it produces fruit. uh, That's how you know. And uh, fruit production may take some time. Uh, That's true in agriculture and it's true in the Christian life. So when someone professes faith in Christ for the first time, we've got every, every reason to be excited about that and to be thankful to God, but we need to be mindful also that faith needs to be tested over a period of time before we can know for sure whether or not it's real. Um, the question is, will that person stand firm for Christ when to do so is going to cost them something? Uh, and Jesus here talks about persecution because of the word. And so, you know, the cost that a person might have to pay might be the cost of some friendships when it it actually is not popular for them to be Christian. How will they stand when people start to mock them for being, you know, for loving Jesus? Or um, I think also in terms of rejecting temptation, uh, because I know times when I've shared the gospel with men over a period of time and they've apparently put their faith in Christ and you know they've responded very positively and i've met with them this is my practice is to meet with people regularly over a period of time uh, to read the bible with them to pray with them to uh, establish them in the christian faith but there's been times when uh, the first temptation or the first testing that they've had in their christian life and they've dropped god just as quickly as they picked god up and, uh, you know, despite attempts to, to retrieve them, uh, they've walked away from the faith because that was seed that was sown on rocky soil. Uh, it's shallow. It's a shallow faith and it doesn't last very long. Now, thirdly, in verse 7 and verse 18, there are those with choked hearts. And they're like seed which is sown amongst weeds and thorns. Uh, the soil is not like the hard-trodden path. Here, you know, the seed has taken root. Uh, the soil is not like the rocky soil either because here the, the plant has with, withstood the heat from the sun. But this plant shares the soil. It's sharing the soil with weeds and with thorns which compete for the nutrients in the soil and slowly they grow uh, winding their way around the plant and killing it. Um, The thorns can choke our love for God and they can do so so ever slowly that they become a part of us and we don't even realise what's happening. It happened to a tree that was in my backyard that used to be in my backyard before I chopped it down. It was a tree I didn't look at very often because it was covered by some other 
trees in front of it. I was doing some gardening out in the backyard one day and I, I noticed this tree that had no leaves on it anymore and uh, it was, looked dead. And upon closer inspection, I discovered a, a very, very thin vine that was about, it was like a piece of string, really, a very string-like piece of vine that had wrapped itself around my tree. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about here, don't you? You've probably... And, and it, it seems to me that it had sucked all the nutrients out of the tree and it, it killed the tree. And as I followed this vine, this very string-like vine, I noticed that it had, it had grown over my fence and had gone and attached itself to my neighbour's tree, its next victim. So we, uh, we cut it out. And, you know, th that's what it's like. Um, th this vine had obviously been growing for a long time, but I, I hadn't even noticed it. Thorns are like that. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. Um, let's think about those thorns, those weeds, those vines that Jesus talks about here. The worries of this life. We worry about problems rather than handing those problems over to God and asking him to take care of them. And when we do that, we try to solve our problems our way and not God's way. And yet in Philippians 4, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but hand everything over to God, because guess what? He's actually your heavenly father. Guess what? He's actually really powerful. Guess what? He can fix your problem for you. He can sort it out. But instead of doing that, we try to solve things our way, and we worry and we get anxious, and we end up doing worldly things which take us away from God. You know, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, do not worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear, you know. Check out the birds of the air. Check out the lilies of the field. Not even Solomon in all his glory was dressed as... So, you know, why do you worry? Why not rather seek first the kingdom of God and seek first his righteousness. Just seek to follow God and do his will and guess what? He'll sort the rest out for you. He may not give you what you want, but he'll give you what you need. <laughs> and uh, you'll, uh, you know, you'll be honouring God in the process. So the worries of this life. He goes on to talk about the deceitfulness of wealth. And we believe the lie which says that life would somehow be more filling more fulfilling if only I had more money. And we look at the things which the world offers and we desire after them rather than desiring our creator. And we have a very, very short-term view of reality and of life, don't we? Someone, uh, pointed, someone showed me this illustration which I can't do for you. But you can imagine it. They pulled out a big roll of string and they might have strung it up at that end of the building and strung it up at the other end of the building and it went out the door on both sides and there was just one little knot in the string and the person said, this string represents eternity 
And that little knot, that's where you're at at the moment and that's what you're giving your whole life over to and you're selling your soul um, because you're only committed to the things of this life and not to eternity. And so that's what we do. We desire after those things instead of desiring after God. And like the vine that killed my tree, it happens so slowly that we don't even notice it happening, do we? It's like, you know, the illustration of the frog. You know the frog illustration, don't you? You know, you get get a beaker, put some cold water in it, put a frog in the beaker. You put the beaker on a tripod and stick a Bunsen burner under it and turn on the gas and light the fire. And the frog's enjoying his nice warm bath. He makes no attempt to escape. He's got no idea that he's being cooked. And that's what the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things do to us. As Christians, we can make decisions in life which may seem small decisions, but incrementally these decisions can affect the direction and the future of our lives. So decisions like, you know, who will I marry? Decisions like, what job will I take? Decisions like, what house and what mortgage and what town, you know, will I, will I commit myself to? And sometimes we can make those decisions without considering the impact on our relationship with God and the impact on our ability to serve God and to serve God's people. So, you know, the single person who thinks, well, you know, it won't do me any harm if I just accept that, you know, that that date, that night out, you know, with the non-Christian person at the restaurant, Um, you know, they're a nice person, be good to get to know them. I might even be able to lead them to Christ. How about that? You make a decision like that, which takes you, you know, there's a next step after that and a next step after that. And before you know it, you can't extricate yourself from that situation very easily. And so I know of people who end up marrying non-Christians and saying that they've regretted that. Not that the person's not nice, but that it's made their Christian life so much more difficult and in some cases, it's just drawn them away from Christ. Or the, uh, the family man who unthinkingly just accepts every job promotion that's offered to him because it'll be good, more money, you know, able to you know, give more to the kids. But he doesn't think through, how's it going to affect my time? Will I still be able to read the Bible to my children every night? Will I still be able to get to Bible study on a Wednesday night? Will I still be, uh, have enough um, energy in the tank to get to church on Sundays? Or the retired person who thinks, well, I'd love to sell up my house in Sydney and do the whole sea change thing and go up to the coast and there's a lovely little town with great beach and you know, beautiful house there. That I can, and they don't even think about what is the church like there? Or how, I, how can I actually be involved in ministry in that place until they establish themselves and figure out there's no church that teaches the Bible in the town where they're living and thinking, and uh, so they just cruise Christianly rather than growing Christianly. So unless the gospel is deeply rooted in our hearts, uh, what I'm saying here is that we can make choices which over time 
take us away from God. Now that is the reality. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says that, that you know, there's, there are people who have been wanting to become rich and he says that they fall into a trap and into many harmful things that, that, that result from that. And he says some who've wanted to become rich have wandered away from the faith. So Paul knew people who profess to be Christians but now they've drifted off because they had their hearts set on this world, on this little tiny bit of the string, rather than on eternity and rather than on God their creator. Now, finally, in verse 20, this is the good news. Jesus talks about those whose hearts are fertile. And here the soil is rich, it is deep, it is moist, it is full of nutrients. Uh, these people, they hear the gospel, they rejoice in what Christ has done for them, and they make the gospel their lives. The word of God is firmly planted in their hearts. Uh, whatever thorns, whatever weeds might have been there, they actually pluck those things out. And so the plant, the word of God, flourishes. Now, let me ask you this. What is the mark of a healthy Christian? The mark of the healthy Christian is always... Anyone want to have a go at this? One word begins with F. Fruit. Fruitfulness. Fruit is the mark of the healthy Christian. Um, just come with me briefly over to Galatians 5 for a moment. We might just look at this. Because in Galatians 5, uh, which you'll find on page mm, 826, in, in Galatians 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and actually, in the last service, I read from verse 22, which is the fruit of the Spirit, lady spoke to me afterwards and said, how about also reading verse 21? She says that, uh, you know, I always hear about the fruit of the Spirit, but what is the fruit in opposition to? So I'm going to do that. In verse 19, he says the acts, or I guess you could say the fruit of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, you're not actually likely to see that quoted on one of those lovely serene Christian posters that you can buy. But you will, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. You see how one is the opposite to the other and Paul by saying the fruit of the sinful nature is this, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is that and so you get the contrast and it makes it clear that this is the person who has a changed life. This is a person uh, in whose life the gospel has found fertile soil and the tree has grown up and is producing abundant fruit. 
This is the person who really wants to honour God in terms of their character, the way that their attitudes, the way that they treat people. And you know what? When a, far, when a, har, when a farmer harvests, harvests his wheat, he doesn't go and just sell all of the grain, does he? He keeps some of the grain because the grain that he keeps becomes a seed for the next season's crop. And it's the same with this person. It's the same with the person whose life is characterised by the fruit of the Holy Spirit because their godliness attracts others to Christ. And Jesus says in verse 23 that this person produces a crop which yields 30, 60 or 100 times that which was sown. Now I don't know enough about wheat and so on to know whether or not that's a normal kind of harvest but you get the idea don't you that there is this multiplication effect that comes through Christians actually putting God first and being that deep rich fertile moist soil so there you have it there are four soils and there are four classic uh, ways that people respond to the gospel and you know what? This analysis by Jesus actually describes, I reckon, every person that we will come across when we're trying to talk to people about Jesus. Uh, every person that you talk to, Jesus, to, about, to about Jesus, they're going to fit into one of those four different categories, uh, the four different types of soil. And notice this. All four responses are responses to the same word. Um, the, the, the farmer, you know, he doesn't go out and change the seed in order to produce a better crop um, because he recognises that it's not the seed that's the problem, it's where the seed lands. That's the problem. And that's important because when you and I share the gospel with people, in our culture, which is driven by the question of, you know, what's in it for me, uh, we're going to be tempted to make compromises and to modify the message in order to suit the heart that is hearing the message. Uh, so that when, you know, for example, a person is not interested in the gospel, um, we might change the message. We might, you know, soften the hard bits of the message. We might not say so much about sin and judgment. Uh, we might um, want to just tell them, well, what's, what's in it for them? You know, here's what God can do for you. Rather than actually painting a picture for them of a holy and glorious and mighty God uh, whom they, they really ought to, to, to live for and trust in. Or the person who, you know, becomes a Christian apparently, but they, they don't want to stand up for Christ in the tough times. And we might be tempted to say, well, look, that's okay. You know, we understand that you don't really want to speak up for Jesus. We understand that you don't want to lead a different life. That's all right, you know. Uh, or the person whose spiritual life is being choked, and we can see that, but we fail to challenge them because we don't want to judge them. And so instead we leave them to be strangled 
by the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. But Jesus is very different to that. And I want to ask you this question as well. Why do you think that Jesus spoke in parables? Do you think he spoke in parables in order to make things easier for everybody to understand? Well, the disciples didn't understand this parable, did they? Um, not at first. Actually, I'll tell you something. I, I preached on this passage once in a tiny little farming community in a tiny little farming church, you know, which was like an oversized dog kennel kind of thing with you know, a whole bunch of utes parked out the front and farmers in, you know, in the congregation. And I asked them this question, you know, why did Jesus speak in parables? And I said, it's not so that everyone can understand, it's because so that no one can understand. And a guy put up his hand and said, no, I understand that perfectly. <laughs> We're all farmers here. <laughs> but you see, they, you understand, even the farmers understand it because Jesus has interpreted it for us. And the reason that Jesus spoke in parables is not so as to give like good sermon illustrations because have a look at what he says in verse 11. In verse 11, um, you know, the question is, why does he speak in parables? Verse 12, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. So apparently he's speaking in parables so that people won't understand because if they understand they might actually repent and they might be forgiven. It's not the way we normally think about parables, is it? It's not the way we normally think about Jesus. But what's he's quoting from Isaiah here and he's quoting from a context whereby God was going to bring about his judgment no matter what. And the issue is that some people hear the parables and they don't understand them and so they dismiss them as being irrelevant because they don't respect the person who's telling them the parable. But others think, well, hang on, what is Jesus saying here? And the parables make them think, they make them probe, they make them question until God eventually reveals to them a deeper understanding of the truth. In other words, the teaching ministry of Jesus divides men. Um, you know in Hebrews chapter 4 when it talks about the word of God, it says that the word of God is like a double-edged sword. right? And it, uh, it, it, um, it, it divides, the, it, it penetrates the human heart and it judges the attitudes of the heart. And it also says that the word of God is therefore living and active. Living and active. And so what it means is that when the word of God is being taught, it always does its work. Uh, whether a person says, well, that's a whole lot of hogwash, that's a load of rubbish, and rejects it, or the person says, well, hang on, this is actually speaking to my heart and there's something in this. Whatever the case, 
The word of God is either doing its work of judging, of exposing the uh, sinfulness of someone's heart or saving someone. And what that means is that um, we therefore, it helps us to deal with the discouragements that we can uh, experience when we're trying to share the gospel with people. Um, because you know what it's like, you know, you, you want to talk to your, your friend or your neighbour or your brother or your sister or sometimes even your spouse about Jesus and they're not interested and you kind of get really discouraged by that. Uh, or you've, you know, there's been someone in church that uh, you've helped them along Christianly You've maybe even seen them become a Christian, um, but then they turn away from God. You don't see them in church anymore, uh, and you can kind of get discouraged by that. What this parable does is that it helps us to diagnose the problem. And it's not saying that the problem is you, uh, if you're the one who's tried to share the word. Uh, it's not saying that the problem is the gospel, as if you've got to kind of modify the message to bring it up to date, you know, to connect with people these days. What it is saying is that the problem is the human heart. You know the, the old saying that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And so therefore we don't change the message I met a guy years ago, he was a pastor in a church uh, that I visited and he told me that he'd stopped preaching the gospel. And I, I said, why? And he said, well, because it doesn't work. And he'd gotten on to doing other things and his church was overflowing with people because of other activities that he was running. But he told me explicitly, the gospel does not work so I've stopped preaching the gospel. Um, we don't do that. We don't change the message. Instead, what we do is we persevere in spreading the word of God, praying that God would change hearts. And so there's an encouragement for us in this passage, but there's also a warning for us. And it's a warning to uh, you, it's a warning to me, to be people who not only listen to the word, but actually make it part of our lives. So let me finish off. Just this one question, how is your heart going? Um, is Jesus first in your heart? Or are there some thorns that are starting to grow up and starting to choke the spiritual life out of you? Or is the gospel really growing deeply in your life? Are you producing an abundant crop? Are you producing that crop of a changed character? Are other people being influenced for God by your life and your word? Now, just a quick note on that. You may not actually see the effect that you're having on other people. Sometimes that's an impact that you have in their lives that you're not even aware of and may be apparent only to, to God and to them and to others who know them. You might even find out 15 years later 
of a word that you said to someone a long time ago that actually impacted their life and changed their life for God, for good. But the question is, what kind of soil are you? We need to be that deep, rich, moist, fertile soil that produces an abundant crop. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the uh, effectiveness of your word that it, uh, uh, that it judges the hearts of men and that it saves uh, uh, many, many people. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would be faithful to the word. We pray that we would not modify the word. We pray that we would uh, be faithful in distributing the word. We pray for our own hearts, Father God, that you would use us. And for those here perhaps who have hard hearts, we pray that you would do your softening work. For those who uh, perhaps are um, uh, in shallow territory, uh, we pray that um, you would uh, deepen uh, their, uh, their love for you. Uh, for those, Father God, who are perhaps being a little bit tangled up in the, uh, the love of money and the desire for the things of this world, we pray, Lord God, that you would change that situation and uh, do that by a renewed understanding and appreciation of who Christ is, what he's done for us on the cross and what it means to live for you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.